Nadia Hashimi is a best-selling international author whose latest book, Sparks Like Stars, draws on her experience as an Afghan-American physician who, like her protagonist in Sparks Like Stars, was on emergency call in New York on 9-11. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series. So you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and in Binge Reading today, Nadia talks about the grief we all understand when mothers lose sons and fathers' daughters of her experience growing up in a culture overtaken by war and writing stories that speak for those whose voices go unheard. But before we get to Nadia, just a reminder, Binge Reading is now on Patreon. For as little as a cup of coffee a month, you can support the show and get exclusive bonus content about books you won't want to put down and the authors who write them. Check out our links to Binge Reading on Patreon on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com, where you'll also find links to Nadia's books and online media. But now, here's Nadia. Hello there, Nadia, and welcome to the show. It's so good to have you with us. Hi, Jenny. It's so great to be here with you. Look, you're an international best-selling writer, and Sparks Like Stars, which is your most recent book and the one we're discussing today in particular, is your sixth novel and your fourth one for adults. You've done a couple of youth uh, books as well, but they all draw heavily on your own background as the daughter of an Afghan family who moved to the States when you were young. Tell us a little bit about that heritage, which comes through in all of your books so far. Sure. So my parents immigrated from Afghanistan in the early part of the 1970s, and they were a couple of the first people from their families and of the Afghan population really to come to the United States. Soon after they left, many others started to follow because of the unrest that had started to bubble up in Afghanistan. And then, of course, in 79, with the Soviet invasion, when it actually, you know, fell into a state of war and conflict, then you started to see widespread movements of refugees. And so I've grown up watching members of my extended family flee from Afghanistan, flee from the conflict, whether it was in the Soviets, the war with the Soviets, or during the civil war or the Taliban regime, and moving to various parts of the world as refugees. And so that these stories and this these struggles have been sort of part of our collective experience. Mm. Sparks Like Stars explores the dilemma of Oriana, an Afghan-American physician in a New York hospital. She's fully integrated into the American way of life, but still haunted by traumatic events that happened in her childhood in Kabul. There's quite a number of similarities between you and that character. I mean, you are also a physician and of Afghan heritage. We don't want to give away too much of the story because there's things that happen in the story that we don't want people to anticipate ahead of time. But you have said that this character is probably the closest of the ones that you've created so far to yourself. Can you talk to us a little bit about the similarities? I guess one thing is that your own 
departure from Afghanistan was not so totally traumatic. It was it was before the really traumatic events started to develop, wasn't it? Well, in fact, it was even more than that. I was born and raised in the United States, and so I've never oh, had a departure. Sorry, from, I didn't realize that. Yes, yeah, I've never yeah. had a departure yeah. from Afghanistan. And so in that regard, this character and I, we're, we're incredibly different. We have incredibly different experiences. The, the ways in which we are similar and what I've drawn upon my own experience to relate is that we both have an Afghan-American identity. We both have the Afghan culture within us. We've grown up with pieces of it. And, uh, and we both were physicians in some some phase of training in New York City on 9-11. And, you know, I was a first-year medical student in Brooklyn, which was just a bit away from uh, from where the Twin Towers stood in Manhattan on 9-11. And so I remember that day very clearly. I remember, you know, the weeks following. I remember the reaction of the country. And I remember just going from the Afghan-American community being relatively anonymous in the United States to becoming, you know, a, a center of attention. And, and not just us, actually, people who were mistaken for Afghans as well. So there were a lot of questions about allegiances and what's going on and where did these terrorists come from and, and what's actually happening in Afghanistan. And so a lot of eyes were suddenly turned on, on to Afghan Americans. And so it, it was a really pivotal moment in the experience of an Afghan American, which is why I wanted to make sure I incorporated it. But really, that's where the similarities and, you know, this particular character has has a personal history, has experienced a trauma that I could not even, well, I want to say I couldn't imagine. I did have to imagine it in order to write the story, but it is so far uh, from my reality. I've been really, you know, fortunate to have not had this kind of experience. Yeah, yeah. Before the trauma that we're referring to arises, you've got the the opening of the book sets a lovely picture of Afghanistan before all of the wars took place, the terrible decades that we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years. It's almost a nostalgic picture, a beautiful picture of close family life and food and community do you do you is it important to you to preserve that picture of Afghanistan because we've seen so many decades of just terrible pictures coming through on the news and we've probably got a bit of an impression now that it's just an absolutely destroyed country. Absolutely. And one of the one of the reasons I wanted to write this story was because you know I've grown up with this Oh, with our home kind of steeped in that nostalgia, with this this grief that has persisted in our homes, um, in our families, for a homeland that has been lost, and for for that particular, you know, time period in Afghanistan's history in which my mother could go to school, she could become a civil engineer, her sisters could go to school, in which music could be celebrated and heard in the streets, and you know, just there was a sense of freedom, and you had. Westerners coming through and backpacking through the country. And it's just very idyllic. And there's so much to be nostalgic about. And that's not to say that everything was perfect in the country and that the cities were exactly the same as what was happening on the countryside. But that being said, it was a country at peace. And so I think that when we take a look at what's happening with the Afghan diaspora around the world, you do get a sense of a sense, there's a sense of grief, of mourning for all that has been lost. You say in the notes at the back of the book that the title sparks 
Like Stars, comes from a poem by an Afghan poet, also named Nadia, Nadia Anjuman. And I looked her up because I, I was an, intrigued by the title. She was a gifted poet who met a tragic end. And I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about that title and what drew you to her work. Sure. The funny story about the title of this book is that I'm I'm horrible at coming up with titles. And I'm fortunate that I have a really wonderful uh, literary agent who represents my work and somehow manages to find titles that fit the stories just perfectly once I've you know finished writing the pages within. And that's exactly what she did with, with this story as well. I kind of had in my mind, my previous works, I've had the titles drawn from works of, of Rumi or Hafez, of you know, these 14th, 15th century uh, Sufi poets. And then for, for this one, I had in my mind that I really wanted a poet who was a woman. And I would love to have done something a bit more contemporary. And I was looking, I was looking, and I hadn't discussed this with my agent, Helen. And, you know, one day out of the blue, I get a phone call from her and she says, I think I might have a title for you. And this is what she pitched to me. And I liked it. And then she told me who it was by. And it was just exactly what I had been looking for. She didn't know that. But going back and reading the rest of the poem and the context and then hearing her life story and, you know, her tragic, um, the end of her life that came at her, actually her husband's hands. It really spoke to the kind of grief and, uh, and pain that the central character of this book was experiencing. Mm. I think it obviously depends on the translation because I looked up the translation and I and the one that I found online didn't actually have the line sparks like stars in it. it. It's a poem called The Night Work. Is that right? Or something the night? It's called The Night's Poetry. And yes, the the title is a little bit of a twist, but she she'd written in there, From a bright cloud falls such pure light, there is no need for my crying. Sparks pour from my sighs like stars. The pigeon of prayer nestles in my Empyrean. And so, you know, it, it's a little bit of a twist, but I think that it captures that idea of just a fiery exhalation. And when you think of what relief each breath we take brings, to imagine it kind of fired up with sparks is is something. Yeah, yeah. All of your novels do tackle similar emotional and confronting issues of the havoc wreaked by war and particularly the way that war and other social effects affect women. A House Without Shadows has been described as the Afghan orange is the new black and it examines the fate of women jailed, some of them for what might be considered not really crimes at all but social um challenges like getting pregnant outside of wedlock or in windows your main character being falsely accused of murdering her husband almost sort of gang bullied into being charged with that offense what is it about these themes that makes you want to write about them uh, so I'm intrigued by injustice. I'm intrigued by stories of how policies or decisions that are made from up on high actually impact people in a very individual way, in a very real way. And and that's what I like to explore through these novels is to say, okay, so what, what is the impact of, you know, whether or not two countries should go to war? 
the impact is on the lives of individuals, right? The impact is on the life of a 10-year-old child, an 11-year-old child, a mother. And that's what I like to explore. In A House Without Windows, you know, I had been reading about women who were imprisoned in Afghanistan for crimes of immorality and just various ways of kind of, you know, chastising women for having agency and actually criminalizing their agency. And then there were surprising things as well that I came upon during my research as I became more and more intrigued is the way that women were able to develop such a sense of community and sisterhood within the confines of a prison as well. And even going so far as to try to organize weddings within the confines of those walls and the way they had their children with them. So it's those kinds of elements that draw me. It's injustices, it's points of friction, issues upon which we can make improvements, which we can we can learn from, we can grow from, and, and then have a real impact on lives. Mm. In an earlier work, The Moon is Low, you trace an Afghan mother who's forced to flee with her children to Europe to escape the Taliban and the desperate vulnerability that such families face. This is extremely topical and and quite often, very rarely, do we get a chance to really get inside the lives of a family like that because they're so far down the sort of social ladder And I was curious, how did you do the research for this book? Because it obviously is quite a way from your own personal life as well. It is and it isn't. Like we talked about earlier, my family, my extended family has been fleeing Afghanistan for decades. And I've watched this happen. I, from the time that I was very young, I would be sitting around the kitchen table and listening to my parents and other relatives discussing, you know, who had made it to where, who had been accepted to which country, and some people were moving with all the right documents, and others were having to take enormous risks with their loved ones, with their children, to try to find a way to safety and some kind of safe haven. And so I've grown up with this talk about documents and affidavits and, um, and letters of testimony and how people are making the cases for themselves and then how many are denied. And this has been like just kitchen table talk for the majority of my life. So I've grown up with these stories. I've grown up with this understanding. And I really, in that book, just wanted to take people a bit back. I think that we use the word refugee as if, you know, these people were born with that title and that is their forever destiny. But refugee does not identify who that person was from the moment that they, that they took their first breath nor is it uh, a terminal diagnosis either. People are refugees for a time in their lives, but that does not mean that is everything that they are. And so I wanted to rewind for a bit and have people take a look at this one particular family and see who they were before they became refugees, before that label was assigned to them. Mm. And it does trace you can identify with the mother's pure terror because she, one of her sons tries to take the role of the man in the family and and actually disappears in a, in a city where they're just all strangers. And that would be the most terrifying thing to have to face. And I just think that story really is a great heart tugger. 
Well, I appreciate that. I think that's uh, the goal of any of these stories is really to humanize what's happening around us and to show the connections, right? Because the mother in that story is feeling what any mother would feel. And that's my goal. And that's what the, the responses that I've gotten that have really made me feel so happy with the, the reception of that book is when people have said, I could imagine myself in that mother's shoes and I don't know what I would have done in her shoes. And oh my gosh, I felt for that mother. And, and so just understanding that from the point of view of either a parent or a friend or a loved one or a child, that we are all the same. We're made up of the same set of emotions. We all are hurt in the same ways with these circumstances. I think that's been really gratifying. Yeah, it really puts a person into those boats that you just see on the news sometimes, that's for sure. And then you tackle another cultural phenomenon, which I was not really aware of in the book, One Half from the East. I don't even know how you pronounce it. Baka Posh, is it? Baka Posh? A Bacha Posh. Bacha Posh. This system that developed socially for preteen girls to dress as boys, to give them a little bit more freedom um, from rigid gender identities. And, and I gather this goes back generations because in your story, you have a grandmother and a granddaughter who both take up this style of, of dressing as a boy when they're young. You tackled this in two books, an adult novel and a young adult novel. And I gather that it must be something you feel deeply about to write two books about it. Well, I wrote the adult book first, and I wrote from the point of view of a Bachaposh, a girl who is dressed as a boy. And this is a custom that happens in Afghanistan to varying extents. It really comes out of a sense of, you know, pride in having a son and a sense of loss in not having a son. So, so there's a superstitious belief that if you dress one of your younger children, a girl as a boy, then the next child born into the family naturally will be an actual boy. And sometimes it's done for that reason. Sometimes it's done for logistical reasons of being able to have a child who can navigate the outside world with a little bit more freedom than a young girl could. And traditionally it's done, it's undone before the child reaches pubertal age, because at that point then gender takes on uh, much more meaning. So I thought that, you know, if I wanted to talk about the difference between being a boy versus a girl and what that would mean in Afghan society, who better to tell us than a child who has lived both of those experiences. And that's why I chose to write the story from the point of view of a Bachaposh. I came upon an old photograph, an archived photograph, black and white, of one of the king's harems. And he had harem guards who were women dressed as men because he did not trust men to actually guard his harem. And so when I came across that photograph, I thought, here I can tie these two individuals and go back in Afghanistan's history and just see what the experience has been for girls and what it's like at various moments to, to play the part of the opposite gender and walk in those shoes. When I wrote that story, it, it circulated among book clubs, and that was the one that really introduced me to book clubs, which has been amazing. And so I've joined conversations, and the conversations around that one were so vibrant. People had so much to say and so much to chew on that, again, my agent suggested to me to write the same, a, a similar story, but to create it for a younger audience. And so I wrote One Half from the East, which is just a book that really starts to explore what does it mean to be a girl? What does it mean to dress as the opposite gender when you're looking at societal expectations that are very traditional? Mm -hmm. 
And so, sorry, I thought the one half from the East was the adult version. What was the adult version called? The adult version is called The Pearl That Broke Its Shell. And that one is oh. it's really about a young girl who is dressed as a betcha push until she is 13 years old. And at that time, she is married off to a warlord and she becomes the fourth child, fourth bride to a local warlord because her father is opium addicted and marries her and her sisters off. So it's a, it's a difficult read. It, it deals with a lot of the issues that Afghans are facing, but not all Afghans, of course. It's just the issues of poverty, of the impact of um, opium addiction, of stress, anxiety, depression, mental health, and the impact that has, that education has on young people and what opportunities that could open up for them. Your other young adult novel, The Sky at Our Feet, is about an Afghan boy in the US who realises, he comes to the realisation that his mother is an illegal immigrant and that launches in him a fear of what would happen if she was deported. I couldn't imagine a more topical issue than this one over the last president presidential occupancy. What sort of response did you get to that book? I'm really proud to say that one has received a warm response and that I've actually had students in schools reading that book. It's really not one meant to, you know, take on a very political position. I think that at the end of the day these are these political positions come down to what do you imagine? What would you want for an individual? What would you want for a family if they were your neighbors? And that's the point of these stories is to start to humanize them, not to dictate a political stance, but rather to talk about the impact of these policies and how things might play out on a micro level. And so this is, it's just a story of a child. And all of a sudden he's dealt this hand. It makes this realization about the logistics of his family and the circumstances of his mom's arrival in the United States and what's led her to overstay her visa. And so I really wanted it to be a very humanizing story again, and just experience what this, what this kind of conflict, internal conflict means for him when he doesn't know if home is home anymore. If this home that is the only home that he's known still welcomes his mom, will he be on his own? And so, you know, it's in the backdrop of fabulous New York City with adventures at every turn. And he meets another young child who is also dealing with a very different issue, a health issue, but again, where she's trying to figure out how she can assert herself in her own life and in her own space. And so the two of them together go on some adventures in New York City as they start to make some realizations about themselves. Mm -hmm. Great. Turning now away from specific books to your wider career, you have been a full-time physician. I gather you're now back into the writing full-time, but when you got started, how on earth did you manage to work as a physician and still write these very demanding books? I was working in an emergency room in Washington, D.C. at a children's hospital. And so I was, you know, working one day doing a shift. And then on days that I wasn't working, I had started to start to tap out a story on my computer. I did it little by little. I think that it really helped me. I was expecting my first child when I started writing and I thought, well, if I'm going to write a story and if I'm going to give this a shot, I want to get it done before the baby is due. And so it helped to have a very natural, you know, deadline looming on the horizon. And then I just started to write about the things that 
that I wanted to talk about, the stories that I wanted to read, the stories I wished I could find on the shelf as a reader, especially when I was younger, we didn't have many books on the shelves in which I could see myself represented, in which I could see my family members represented. And so it felt really important to me to start to tell those stories. I did not imagine when I was writing the first one where this would go, where it would take me. And so I just gave it a shot and one thing led to another. So over the years, I have spent less and less time as a pediatrician as I've had to spend, not that I've had to, but I've enjoyed spending more and more time being able to write, share these stories, and then talk with people around the world about these tales. Was there anything that particularly got you started writing fiction? Uh, uh, Had you had a lifelong desire to do that or how did it come about? It was a dare, would you believe? I, um, I, uh, my husband actually, you know, in the first year that we were married, previously to our marriage, we had been living in different cities. And so we didn't, um, you know, there were things that we learned, uh, habits that we learned. And one of the things that he learned in the first year of our marriage was just how much time I like to spend reading books. And, you know, at one point, one day he told me, well, you love books so much. Why don't you write a story? And it, it felt like a little bit of a challenge. But he's a believer that, you know, if you if you dream of something, you should do it. And I, I really hadn't thought of writing until then. I think when I was much, much younger, I had, you know, dreamed of writing stories. But then I, you know, took on a very different path in my academics. And I thought at one point, well, maybe I can, maybe I will. And that's when I just sat down and said, well, if I'm going to write, what would I write about? So it was really, you know, just a bit of a challenge from him, a bit of a dare. And and I so I always give him credit for starting this. Oh, that's lovely. And now looking back over this career, is there one thing you feel you've did more than any other that might have helped you to get to this point? Well, you've got all these published books and an international readership. I think that the one thing that I've done to get me here is to write what I'm passionate about. Because that's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's very, very hard to sit down and spend so much time away from family, away from other responsibilities, without any kind of certainty about where this effort is going and if it's going to lead to anything at all. To do that, there has to be at the heart of it some real passion for the story at hand. And I think that's what's gotten me to this point. It's, It's really wanting to put myself in the shoes of my characters, to get to know my characters, to talk about these issues, to spread the word, to do so in a way that honors the struggles, that does justice to the people who are showing such resilience, and that really shines a light on the universalities of all of our stories in in a way that we'll talk to people about these not really being Afghan issues. These are human issues that are happening within an Afghan context. Yeah. Yeah. Look, we are starting to come to the end of our time together and it is the joys of binge reading. So we do want to hear about your reading tastes currently. Are you, number one, a binge reader? Even if you're not a binge reader, what do you like to read at the moment and what would you like to recommend for our listeners? Oh, so I like to read... I I read a bit diversely and then I read in different ways as well. So I usually have one book that I'm reading like in a hard copy and that one is usually the slowest going and then I have something that I'm reading on my on my Kindle on an ebook and then I have something usually that I'm like listening to as well and then sometimes on top of that I've got something that I'm reading aloud with the children although they've been doing a little bit more reading on their own so some of my recent reads I just finished reading 
The Heart's Invisible Furies by John Boyne, which was amazing. It took my breath away. The ending was um, just, it, by then I realized I, I was in love with these characters. Last Call, which is a true story of love, lust, and murder in queer New York. That's a nonfiction book, which is very tenderly told of of a, a spring a spree of murders that happened in the queer community in New York City. I've just finished listening to Of Women in Salt, which was fantastic. So those are some of my recent ones and I'd actually recommend all of them. Tell us a little bit more about A Woman in Salt. So Of Women in Salt, it, it was a very immersive book and one that was a bit different. It Cuban origins and talks about a very complicated family history, but again, is a story that talks about displacement, about immigration and the journeys, but told from a very female-centered way where the voices really are all female-centered. And so it's kind of a story of, of motherhood, of daughters, of legacy, and then these shared struggles and how they're processed differently in generations. Fantastic. Sounds great. <laughs> Look, circling around and looking back down the tunnel of time, at this stage of your career, if you were doing it all over again, what, if anything, would you change? Oh, I don't know if I would change anything. I feel like I am a believer that every step, right or wrong, every every stumble, every fall, has informed where I am today and has changed me and made me the person who was able to write Sparks Like Stars. And I'm, I'm really glad for the reception that this book has received. If I were to go back and look, and I, I don't reread my previous books, <laughs> for example, because there are passages that I will look at and I'll be like, oh my gosh, this was written uh, in such and such a way and I should have changed it and I should have done this and I should have done that. But that hindsight, I think, can be really toxic. And so I do believe in looking forward and looking ahead. You know, it, would I have wanted to skip being a pediatrician and then go straight to writing? I think about that sometimes, but my nights, my days in the emergency room, being in those close quarters and those really privileged private moments with families in really difficult situations, that has informed me as a person as well. That has informed my writing. So I think all of it comes together in a way that is a very unique journey and one that I would not change. And I can't anyway, so, <laughs> so we'll just keep it the way it is. It's nice that you mentioned about looking forward because looking forward for the next 12 months or so, what projects have you got on the boil and, and what's your time going to be taken with in the next year? Have you got new projects under development? I do. And I'm really hopeful that in the last few weeks, at least my children have been able to at least part-time go back to school in person, which has, I've got four children who are 11 and under. So suffice to say that it's been a difficult year of writing at home with everyone here. Oh, yeah. So I'm looking forward to being able to finish what I'm working on now, which is a young adult book. That'll be my first uh, venture into the YA uh, book world. And then I've got some ideas for another adult story to come after that. So hopefully I'll be getting into those. So you've had nearly a year of homeschooling, have you? We have. It's been over a year. We've learned a lot. <laughs> it's been a challenge, but it's been a challenge for everyone. And, you know, this is not what I would have wanted for, for my children, not what I would have wanted for anyone. But I think that we hopefully will come out of it understanding our communities better, understanding our needs better, understanding our school system better. And of course, as a physician, I'm hoping that we can understand how better to prepare and have some more safety nets in place. Yeah. 
I'm sure that you hear a lot from your readers. How can they reach you online and what's the best way to, to find you? Oh, I'm, I'm very easy to find. I may be too easy to find, but I, I really do enjoy engaging with readers. I love being able to join book clubs and just round out the conversation. I, I appreciate that people, when they read these stories, actually want to know more about what's happening in Afghanistan or want to tie it to what's happening currently in Afghanistan. And I'm involved with advocacy circles, so I am pretty um, pretty aware of what's going on and, and where, the, where the issues are standing today. So I am on Instagram. I am rarely on Twitter but I am there. I'm on Facebook. I can always be reached through my website as well. There's a contact box in there. That's fabulous, my dear. Well, look, thank you so much for being part of Binge Reading. And I'm sure that listeners will want to look up some of not just Sparks Like Stars, but uh, the whole lot of your work. Thank you so much. I hope so. I hope people like it. And I'm so grateful to anyone who picks up the story because I know there are so many great books out there. That's fabulous. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with, no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.